So when we are um, unwell, um, metaphor infuses so much of our language. For instance, we might find ourselves talking about a journey we're on. One concrete thing, however, that resurfaces all the time is the idea of home, um, and home finds itself getting a particular prominence when, uh, when we're um, unwell. So to talk about home, or at least to begin to think about the fringes of it today, through their poetry, through their metaphor, are two poets. I'm going to invite to the stage now um, Mona Arshi, who is a lawyer and a poet, and Liz Berry, who is a poet, both of whom, in fact, over a short space of time, were awarded the Forward Prize. So Mona and Liz, um, onto the stage for home. Thank you. Thank you. They're lost in the map of the uh, <laughs> stage. Here we are. Thank you very much. Morning. Morning. How are you both? Good, thank you. Well. <laughs> Ominous. <laughs> yeah, it's the apocalyptic, uh, it's the apocalyptic fear we're going for with the, the new projector sound. Um, I was, I was, I was this only this morning, in fact, Liz. I was um, looking up on the BBC website, the Black Country. And interestingly, the phrase that comes up when you look at the black country, I've got it here, is that many definitions of where black, black country is, but one thing's for sure, you won't actually find it marked on any map, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Why is it called the black country? There's lots of different versions of the story of how the black country, which, if you're not sure, it's a region just north of Birmingham, how it became known as the black country. Um, it was a really heavy industrialised area and it seated atop uh, a big coal seam, so that's one sense of the word black. And also there's a really brilliant story that um, in Victorian times, Queen Victoria took a train journey around Britain to survey her beautiful regions. Um, and when they got to the black country, she's reported to have said, draw the curtains on this terrible black country. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because that's such a... A sort of negative connotation of it but actually for people that are from the black country and live there now or live there and moved away the name black country is held with such affection and it's such a mark of identity mm. recently the black country has even developed its own flag um, <laughs> and there's a real uh, sort of funny sense of pride there mm. and, and Mona my family in fact um, so I'll often find ourselves having conversations about where in India they were from, and I know that uh, you're, you're a Londoner, but your um, family is Sikh Punjabis. Yes. So it, I, when I'll ask my mum whereabouts that is, they'll say, well, you know, I'll get this kind of really nebulous answer saying it was in Pakistan before the partition, but in fact it's in Indian pun Punjab. I'll never get a straight answer as to where the Punjab actually is. And it's a region, isn't it, that straddles yeah. both sides of that That's right. border. Yes, yes. That notional border at one point, now very, yes. now very real border. Yes, and actually, um, my father, where he lives, um, which is very, very close to the border of Pakistan, when he was, w during the time of partition, when he was a, a very young child, uh, there was some talk as to whether or not Batala, the state that he was living in, uh, was going to be, which side it was going to be mm. on. So for a long, long time, the family didn't know. It was only right at the end when the line was drawn mm. that they ended up in India. 
but um, I often think how different my life would have been actually if that little that that tiny little line that was drawn if it was draw just drawn 50 miles down. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it's interesting the idea of the map. And both of, uh, both of your the idea we're, we're talking about a home, but, but and the reason I've, we asked you to this particular session was the both of your work, your poetry gravitates to a sense of home, time, place, but not in a way that's necessarily explicitly saying we're going to talk about home, but the, it's conjured, the, the, the image of a, of, of, a, of a place, something somewhere that means something to you is very much conjured cumulatively in the language. But if I were to say to you, what does the idea of home mean? Is it somewhere you'd locate geographically? Do you think it has a geographical locus for you? I think it means different things to you at different times <laughs> in your life. It's interesting, I, I live in Birmingham now, very close to the black country, and I write a lot about the region, but most of the poems in my first book, which is called Black Country, were written when I wasn't living there, when I was living away, and being away from it, I think, gave me the freedom to play with the idea of home, to conjure this almost magical black country, kind of create a new map for it, take things that were really there, real words, real stories, real places, and make something magical and fantastic out of them. And I think being away from the place gives home a certain kind of charm or a glimmer that often it doesn't have when you're there day to day. Just a charm or a glimmer, or is it almost as if the being absent from it is what gives it form? Actually, being there, it's hard to state almost, but being away from it, and people talk a lot, and I'm sure this will come up later on, the idea of nostalgia, but being away from home means you can see it. Is that something...? Yeah, I mean, I think home is a very small word which has almost sort of domestic, cosy connotations. And I think for me, and for many people actually in this country, um, if you have uh, an, a recent immigrant history, mm and you have a sort of quite a, hyph a hyphenated identity, which increasingly people do. And where I'm in London, they really do. What do you mean by that, hyphenated so, identity? So, um, you know, I feel myself, if I was going to identify or self-identify, I would, it's very complicated. It's, <laughs> you can't really flatten out. And you can't, so I'd say, I'm British, I'm a Londoner, I'm Punjabi. Punjabi is part of my language, you know, it's my mother tongue. Um, so all those things are, I mean, I, I wasn't born in India, to me, uh, if I was in Punjab, I feel quite foreign. But that doesn't mean that India doesn't have a sort of um, a place for me in home, for whatever home means. Mm. And um, so this, and then uh, together with home, the other side of home is the foreign. Um, and actually, I think that's something that we can all feel sometimes, mm. even when we feel like home. Mm. Um, and it's interesting what we were, we were talking about. You just mentioned nostalgia, because I think that when you have immigrant parents, mm. my parents' idea of home is tinged with this kind of fantasy, mm. almost. Mm. And actually, and it's illusory, you know, mm. that, that world that they came from doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, so playing with that idea of what home means, reaching, striving for this idea of whatever it means, combined with feeling foreign is something that I think I know we both do in our in mm. our writing because mm. it's an important it informs the language, mm. which is I think 
an interesting way of exploiting that feeling. Uh, but maybe the sense of foreignness, the sense of estrangement from home uh, and the notional comfort of it is the imperative almost to, to drive the language and the poetry. It, it's poetry, I imagine, very rarely comes from a place of feeling pretty settled about things. There's, a, there's an impulse which is unsettled, provoking you to interrogate it through language, isn't I, it? I think that's the nature of a poem. Yeah. You feeling almost at sea and foreign in yeah. a poem, but also feeling this um, sort of sense of belonging in the poem as well. Yeah. Arrival in the poem, then. Yes, yeah. but yeah. sort of those two contradictions. It's almost a paradox, really, that you, you say that you feel like that in a poem, but I think that's what poetry does. Feeling uncomfortable in a poem is a good thing, I think. Mm. <laughs> Could we hear a few poems, perhaps in turn, from whichever, whichever order and for however long you like? We can, we'll lock the door. I don't mind. <laughs> um, okay, well, I'll read a poem um, actually called The Gold Bangles. And actually, this is a poem um, which I suppose is un uncovers some of these issues. <laughs> It's called The Gold Bangles, and um, uh, my mother gave me some gold bangles. And actually, the poem isn't really about the gold bangles, <laughs> um, but it's a sort of way of sort of talking about journey and migration and loss. Um, so, The Gold Bangles. In my bedroom dresser, in a little red box, sit two gold bangles. They are pure yellow gold, and the pair are a set, though I believe they once belonged to part of a bigger set some time ago. They were given to my grandmother and passed down to my mother upon her marriage. They are very simple, wide bands, and wear and age have pitted the surface and begun to affect the integrity of their modest design. I imagined they were the kind of thing that could be melted down and refashioned into more ornate jewellery or sold by weight quite easily, depending on the circumstances. I believe many girls at that time in those Punjabi villages would have been presented with similar items by their parents before they departed on their long journeys. My mother wore them on her journey to England. When I hold them in my hands, I like to think not of that long period when she owned them, but the time before that, her waiting for Papaji by the gate, like so many other gates, her wrists still unadorned and naked. I'll read a poem called Bobola. I was commissioned recently to write a poem about one of the most well-loved dialect words in the Midlands. And the word that was nominated was Bobola, which is a beautiful word for a really big moth. Mm -hmm. And when I started hearing people's stories about the Bobola and their feelings about it, it seemed that it wasn't the moth or even the word that enchanted them. It was this idea that when you speak a word that someone you love or a place you come from, that word used to be spoken, you can conjure that place or that person or that time or that feeling back into being, back into your mouth. And it made me think about the really beautiful ancient myths of moths 
as being carriers of souls of the dead. Bobola. Bobola. Darkling wench. To see a flower face on a waning moon and spake her name aloud is to conjure the voice of one you loved and let slip through the wingles of death. In the owl light, when loneliness shines through your bones like a bare bulb, she'll come for you. Little herald carrying missives from the dark, she comes to all the night birds, the cuckoos, the thieves, the oldens and the babbies in their dim-lit wombs, the boy riding his bike up Beacon Hill, heart thundering like a strange summer storm. And the messages she brings in a slow, soft flight. Too tender to speak of. Too heart sore. But this. I'm here. I'm waiting. The love that lit the darkness between us has not been lost. Language and uh, musicality of language accent defines, or is so closely associated with the notion of home and place. And hearing you, that's you know self-evidently true. But but Mona also, I remember growing up and speaking you know terrible still Hindi, but Punjabi. Yeah. Punjabi was mischievous and musical and naughty and fun um, and defined for me Punjab is that something I mean and you both both in your poems Mona when you your poems certainly around guzzle mm. um, and Liz your complete immersion in that voice and accent are, pro are producing for us a sense of home and place that's audible how, how important is that correlation of language to home uh, well, the, the, the guzzle, um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the guzzle, but it's a, it's a really beautiful form, more, uh, even older than the sonnet. <laughs> and it started out life in Persia and sort of gravitated to the Indian subcontinent. Um, and it's really the sonnet of the Indian subcontinent now. <laughs> and um, what's so lovely about the guzzle is the fact that it is musical. It has very, very long lines, so you're able to score the music. It has refrains and echoes, um, and there's a real, because it's also steeped in Sufism, it has this really wonderful kind of um, meditative quality about it, and it's very playful. And um, I, I, you know, like many people, I went through the British, you know, um, English system here, and I learnt the canon, and I, I read Wordsworth and Keats and the war poets, but alongside that, what my father gave me was a love of the Punjabi language and the Urdu language yeah. and the music and that never leaves you mm. even I mean I and also in a weird way in another sort of contradictory way even though I, I write in English and I use the guzzle mm. in English uh, English was a foreign language to me until I was seven years old because I right. I only spoke Punjabi right. until I was you know seven six mm. or seven um, so for me that 
contradiction again is really interesting because there was a time where English was foreign. Mm. Um, and the translatability, I mean, I, I remember sitting in the car with my mum and her playing guzzles and me saying, well, what does that mean? What's he? So I didn't like, I, I, I didn't grow up speaking uh, Hindi to any description of Hindi or standard, but I'd say, what does that mean? What's he saying? And she'd kind of look at me and sigh and go, well, you know, I can't, it's not translatable. Yeah. He's saying his wife is like the moon and I kind of think well, <laughs> and she and, and there'd be, there, it would fall you know it would fall down there'd be a huge chasm between what she was obviously experiencing a lot of which was memory and your description yes. of, of home and being able to tell me to what extent do you think because you've written a couple of poems yes. called Guzzle it is translatable or that we are translatable to one another from a position of home to something that's foreign to it I think you use it as a way, you kind of use it through, you put it through a lens um, and you do, you turn it into something else. I can't, I'm not going to be producing guzzles in the same way that an Uddu poet like um, Fayaz might be able to produce. But what I think I've tried to do is take the sensibility um, and the music. And actually that's what lives in, the, in something like the guzzle, it's the music. And actually, guzzles in, um, are often put to music. Mm. They are put, that's what, that's what they're for. Mm. So I think as long as the kind of the music is in my head, I can evoke uh, the spirit of the guzzle. And I don't worry too much about, well, you know, how would the purists mm. think about this, you know, in, mm. in Persia or India. I, I sort of feel like I'm doing my own thing in, in the English language. And, and, that, for me, is how I kind of square the circle. And preserving it, in a way, almost, as well, well through presenting it. That's kind of what form is for, you know, conserving energy. That's what you're doing. And so if you find the right form, and, and the guzzle is very, very good for doing, for containing music and long lines and the idea of belonging and longing, it's all in, embedded in the guzzle. So, um, I mean, they're difficult to write. I mean, I've, I haven't written very many, but they're there is something about evoking the spirit of that that I like to embed in those, in mm. those very, very long lines. Mm. Liz, do you want to say something about that and your, the way in which, and some of the poems do this very explicitly, mm. present um, the vernacular and language and lilt of a black country accent, but you, in speaking it, you know, there's, a, there's a real musicality and beauty to that. That's something that's conscious, isn't it? Mm. That's something that's important to you to do. Yeah, and I think what Mona just said was so beautiful. There's something about the musicality of language, and it doesn't matter whether it's a language, a vernacular language, a dialect. I think if you can capture the music, that's what you can carry through, and that's what people can take from it. I've written a lot using black country dialect, mm. But I often think that you don't necessarily need to know the meaning of the words. Yeah. Some of them are so beautiful, you can just take the music with them. Mm. In the way we can listen to songs in another language, and we don't fret about it, we just enjoy them. Mm. And so I think there's a great potential for that in poems as well. Could we hear another couple? I mean, I, I mean it doesn't have to be guzzle mm. or... or no, or I'd, but, um, I'd like to read a guzzle, great. actually. Um, great. So I'll read... Um, there's two traditional... Uh, two guzzles in the book, and one is more traditional than the other, and I think I'll give you the more traditional one. It has a little um, epigraph, which is um, an Arab saying, I thought, you had my, I thought you my bird, and I built you a nest in my heart. Guzzle. 
breathe me in this disheveled night, I go unnoticed. The airs turn strange and solid, but only I will notice. If I allow beams of light to pass through the pinholes of my torso, and if light strikes the wall on the other side, would you notice? Tonight you're three parts God and one part sandalwood dust. I keep catching your scent by the window. I always notice. My words pile up like prophets on the point of my tongue. What passes for transparency are those things you don't notice. I steal robin's eggs and sketch powder down feathers for you. My pocket heats a pulsing nest the creatures never even notice. If you could let me bangle my arms around you, rain would fall. It would speck my lips, my open fingers. Then you'd notice. Instead, my eye remains locked in the platinum part of the flower. The highest branches are the only living things to notice. Well, I'll follow Mona's lovely birds with another bird. Um, this is a poem that uses lots of dialect. It's called Birmingham Roller. And the Birmingham Roller is a really beautiful tumbling pigeon that's bred in Birmingham in the Black Country. And if you've never seen the Roller, then you must go and look it up later. <laughs> it's so beautiful, it performs this really amazing trick. So when it's flying, it suddenly stops mid-air and starts somersaulting backwards and down towards the <laughs> ground. And just, just when you think, actually, it's going to fall out of the sky, it swoops back up and joins the rest of the birds in the kit. And as soon as I saw the roller, I just fell in love with it because it seemed the most perfect symbol, not just for the region, but most specifically for its language. Because really, it's this very ordinary, grey-looking pigeon, but it's got... <laughs> a truly spectacular trick under its wing. <laughs> there's probably only one word of dialect that it's nice to know in this poem. And in the last line, there's the word Donny, which is, I think, my favourite dialect word, and it means a hand, especially a little child's hand. Birmingham Rowler. We spent our lives down in the blackness. Those birds brought us up to the light. Jim Shell, tumbling pigeons in the black country. Wench, you're the colour of our town. Concrete, steel, oily rainbow of the cut. Our streets are in your wings. Our factory chimneys, the plumes on your chest. Your hearts, the china. Our old girls dust in their tranquilment cabinets. Bread to dazzling. In backyards, by men whose arms grew soft as feathers just to touch you, to cradle you from egg through each jeff-defying tumble. Little acrobats of the terraces, we're winged when we gaze at you, jimmicking the breeze, somersaulting through the white-breath prayer of January, and then rolling back up like a babby's yo-yo, caught by the Alpen Donny of the Clouds. <laughs> oh.
both of you gravitate back in, in the books to particular um, memories and periods, birth and death, that are, um, you know, clearly um, charged and sometimes painful. And I was, I was thinking about that and thinking, in fact, so much of my sense of home is rooted in memories, almost like stepping stones around it to give it form. Is that something you'd recognise? And particularly, Mona, some of your um, poems in small hands around uh, death. Mm. I think your brother's yes. um, death. Is that something that you... The one that... The, the clear image that strikes me is of you laying out sheets mm. in a room ahead of a um, religious ceremony, yeah. which really resonated, because I remember doing that, exactly that, and defined that sense of home for me. Yes. Um, I'm, I spend a lot of time looking back, um, and I think that's sort of part of... It feels like it's part of the job of the poet to really look back, <laughs> and so much of looking back is so steeped in, you know, this idea of, well, difference, I guess, for mm. me. Um, so I suppose when I talk about, for me, quite mundane things, those are ordinary things to me. But again, I think because I try to evoke them through the lens of a particular heritage and a cultural heritage, for other people, that's unusual. Mm. Um, just to give you an example, um, I did something for radio. Um, I wrote a little program for Radio 4 on um, responding to the Odyssey. Mm. And um, so the idea was that poets would re respond to the Odyssey in their own way, in their, to something that talks to their own experience. And I really wanted to talk about my father's journey. My dad um, came to the UK 50 years ago uh, by boat, in the same way that... Um, mm. Odysseus was on this boat, and I just thought, well, this is, I just need to, obviously, I need to tell this story. And when I was sitting with the um, producer, I said, oh, of course, my dad arrived, and the, the third day that he arrived, he cut his hair, his turban, he had a turban, and he was told that he, there was no way he was going to get a job um, unless he cut his hair, and it would be much, much easier. So he went to this, this shop, in a barber shop in Southall, where there was a long line of Sikhs mm. waiting their turn. Mm. And I said, well, actually, everyone knows that. And he said, no, no mm. one knows this. You know it. You know, um, and actually, that's what I've surprises mm. me. You kind of assume that everyone sort of, because it's your memory and your experience. Um, so he said, no, you've got to gotta start with that. You've got to start with the barbershop. <laughs> um, so I had to have a long conversation with my father for the first time about... So I guess a lot of that is to do with the fact that um, my parents are a certain age and I'm looking back more and more and using that experience and, and it's arriving as poems in the books. And do you think, is there a sense then that... Because what you're saying there is that there's something very particular for you that defines that bit of home. But actually, in voicing it, there's something much more universal as well. It's immediately, it becomes recognised. Yeah, I mean, I think lyric poetry is very good for that. It sort of provides a mirror um, for that experience. Um, you know, we lose people. Um, our parents get older. We look back. We have children. We experience the same things. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about writing poetry. You know, it has this humanising effect. 
and it dissolves loneliness sometimes, mm. actually. Um, through making things more widely, through, through making experience shared or recognised yes, in others. Yes, and yeah. I think that... I think that's the, the other reason why I think it's also to sh important to share a wide variety of experience um, and to have those voices. And we have a very diverse country, and so I want to hear about Liz's experience because that talks to me in a totally different way. And actually, the music for me, are, my ear is aroused, yeah. you know, when yeah. I hear that. Yeah. And so I think that's what's really wonderful about poetry because once I think you hear the experience, it's something that you can understand because, of course, you, we're, we're human beings and we've been there. Was that important, Liz, in, in, in writing the Black Country poems to give, uh, to not just, as you say, add a glimmer to a region, but to give it voice, in, in a, not to romanticise it, and that's, I guess, quite a difficult tension, uh, not to sentimentalise it, but to make it alive and present in light, in a way, it wouldn't necessarily, not wishing to do down the black country, mm. but it wouldn't be the subject of poetry <laughs> or, 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 or literature necessarily. No, and there was a little phrase that I heard you use before, some which was longing and belonging, and I think that's what's at the root of so many poems when we write about love and about family and home. There's this sense of belonging or wanting to belong, but also this deep yearning. And to I, belong. To or is it ambivalent? Is it more ambivalent than that? I think it's that? ambivalent. It's to belong, but we to spoke, run away. As yeah, well. we spoke about that tension of wanting to be at home and wanting to go. And actually, lots of the poems in the book are, are about that. But yeah, I think probably one of the most important things to me about writing the book and also the response to the book mm. has been being able to make something magical or beautiful or say something in a poetic way about the black country, mm. because really I hadn't done before and, and, and you spoke about romanticising. I think what's happened to the black country is the absolute opposite mm. of that. Mm. You never hear anyone say anything nice about it mm. outside of the region, mm. never. Year upon year it's voted one of the most depressing regions, <laughs> the region with the least lovely accent. Mm. <laughs> it just gets a real disservice but actually it's a really gritty, lively, incredibly tender, complex, historically important region. So it felt a real privilege to be able to say, everybody look, it's on the map, but you're missing it. No one's actually <laughs> seen it or knows where it is. But something, in, what, something mm. in that dismissal is also implicitly something about class, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which echoes, and you know, there's no getting away there also, Mona, from your description of your dad and having his turban. That's not simply a shift in identity so you can dissolve in the crowd. It's also, it's, it's about class in there as well, isn't there? And the whole immigrant experience and trying to homogenise to a level of class. Yes. I mean, I was just thinking, actually, when, when you were talking about, um, you know, I grew up in Hounslow, mm -hmm. and that's regularly <laughs> vote. I mean, we're not going to have a competition about this, but, you know. <laughs> Out of lovely voted. regions. <laughs> but my parents still live there, and it's home to them. Yeah. Um, but... It is really interesting. I, I mean, I, I think the, for me, the idea of home is really, really com even more complicated for our first generation parents. And I don't think I really understood that until now, how complicated it is. And this idea, you know, when people say, where are you from? And the, the, when they say from, it's slightly, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I say Chiswick. What they, <laughs> they, 
they don't want that yeah. answer. Yeah, where are you from from? They yeah. want from. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the constant, you know, I, I, I resist that constantly because I just think, well, actually, this is home. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I think that that is really, I think that experience for, for my parents, I, I found, I mean, my parents never tell me really how hard it was, but mm. now I realise, when I, when I, particularly when I spoke to my father about writing this um, episode, how, re how hard it was. Mm. And also, all this time, being physically in a different place and actually striving in your head to, to be somewhere else, and that other place changing the whole time um, and then you go back, I mean, my parents went back 10 years later, and it was a totally different place. And mm. uh, so it's nostalgia, it's steeped in nostalgia and fantasy, and, and actually home is not there anymore, but neither probably is here. Mm. And that kind of immigrant kind of dilemma is fascinating, and I think it's quite poignant as well. I mean, I in um, Odysseus's story, he talks about Ithaca as this kind of, fat, you know, mm. Penelope is Ithaca, this kind of you know idea of it, and of course it's not like that anymore. Mm. Yes, but um, it's so in the same yep. in the same way, it's yeah, it's idealised by many many um, first generation immigrants, mm. and mm. the refugee experience, of mm. course, is even more difficult, I think, mm. and more complicated. Um, and your work as a lawyer, did that does that have in, does that afford has that afforded you the human rights lawyer yes. a window onto that that's gone into the poetry, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I used to work with refugees mm. um, and many children, actually, lots of unaccompanied minors. And this idea of the bird, actually, I mean, I've known in both of our books, we have, mm. we have, we have many, many birds. Mm -hmm. But this idea of the bird as mm. a metaphor for that kind of e experience mm. of belonging and this kind of, this, this tenderness about the bird, I think is something that I, I think comes from there. And the fragility of it, the fragility of flight, I suppose. Mm. The, the, the odd miracle of it, I suppose. Mm. There's that great, uh, um, Caroline Duffy's this great line of bird making a nonsense of the air, mm. the, the fact yeah. it's so ephemeral. Can we have some more poems? Maybe, maybe yes. a little run of a couple okay. each. Um, I might read a new poem, actually. Um, it's very, very new, in a very delicate state. Um, so new and delicate, it's, it's got writing all over it. Um, and it's... I was showing it to Liz earlier, I said it's not even in a form yet. Um, but it's called Unarriving, so it felt right to read it today. So I'll read this now. Unarriving. My parents who came but never arrived. All our chickens have finally come home to roost. What is a country, really? My mother licks stamps before the full fall of dark. Gloaming, they call it, in Scots. My mother, my father asks for bread in milk. We are still passaging. This house was built in an orchard. There are forgotten pears all over the grass, their freckling skin barely containing their flesh. Summer can be savage. I lost a girl once in some woods. I thought I knew like the back of my hand. Both of us on bikes, me cycling down slowly yet, when I reach the bottom where the paths merge at the oak coppice, she is not there. I abandon my bike, retrace my steps, and walk deeper into the woods. Like others, I've squandered hours waiting for the miracle in a temple where a statue was crying. 
Inexhaustible pale tears she wept. I've been distracted by my own neat row of mirrors before taking the penultimate seat on a crowded stadium, our knees not touching. Now my little mother is entering, leaving through a narrow lintel, the rain spitting in her hair parting as I refold the umbrellas. As for the girl, well, I've almost forgotten where to look, her small head sealed in the white helmet, bobbing through the branches as she descends into the hush, the dappled other. The thick soup of our childhood pain, peat and rain would stir with sticks, and a girl looking up and asking, where are you from and what country are we in? Um, I'll just read you a couple of poems that are little elegies, actually, for my brother. This is Small Hands. We've managed to cover the carpet with the sheets. We spend a long time on this task, stretching, pressing the fabric, passing our palms over creases. When we're done, the small room seems to have swollen with light. Soon the white sheets will fill with quiet bodies. They'll slip off their shoes before they enter. I'll shift round on my knees to cover the exposed floor. Someone will place his hand on my head. An older relative will ask for my mother. Someone will say, all March it hasn't rained and now the rain comes. We'll drink sweet tea. She'll be tapping the glass. Only her knuckles illuminated. And this is April, also an elegy. April. Brave things are happening in the garden when I'm not looking. The junction of each branch holds its sobriety. Frost no longer attempts to fasten onto the deepest roots. But still, I'm not sure about trusting myself with the distances. In the house, they come to terms. The youngest has gone. The rooms vibrate. My father weighs his son's glasses in his hands. The word they use for zero is shunya. They come to terms with its blank center. How have the family received the, the poems, Liz? Do they feel as if you've translated them to the world? Do they feel glad of them? I think they do. I hope they do. Um, I think I tried, whilst being playful in the poems, also to be respectful mm. of the people whose lives I was writing about mm. and to be tender towards them. Mm. Tender in that sense of being gentle and soft and sweet, but also tender in the sense of something that's sore and painful mm. and difficult for people. So I, I tried to be aware of that in the poems. That's great, the I two senses like of tender. Yeah, mm. brilliant. Um, I'll just read two poems. A few years ago, um, home again became a really different idea for me. 
because I crossed a different kind of border when I became a mum for the first time. I've got two little sons now, and I've just kind of begun to write about that strange country of, um, of early motherhood. The Republic of Motherhood. I crossed the border into the Republic of Motherhood and found it a queendom, a wild queendom. I handed over my clothes and took its uniform, its dressing gown and undergarments, mm. a cardigan soft as a creature, smelling of birth and milk. And I lay down in motherhood's bed, the bed I had made but could not sleep in, for I was called at once to work in the factory of motherhood. <laughs> the owl shift, the graveyard shift, Feeding, cleaning, loving, feeding. I walked home, heart sore through pale streets, the coins of motherhood singing in my pockets. And I soaked my spindled bones in the chill municipal baths of motherhood, watching strands of my hair float from my fingers. Each day I pushed my pram through the freeze and blossom down the wide boulevards of motherhood where poplars bent their branches to stroke my brow. I stood with my sisters in the queues of motherhood, the weighing clinic, the supermarket, waiting for motherhood's bureaucracies to open their doors. As required, I stood beneath the flag of motherhood and opened my mouth, although I did not know the anthem. When darkness fell, I pushed my pram home again and by lamplight wrote urgent letters of complaint to the Department of Motherhood, <laughs> but received no response. <laughs> I grew sick and was healed in the hospitals of motherhood, with their long closed isolation wards and narrow beds watched over by a fat moon. The doctors were slender and efficient, and when I was well, they gave me my pram again so I could stare at the daffodils in the parks of motherhood while winds pierced my breasts like silver arrows. In snowfall, I haunted motherhood cemeteries, the sweet fallen beneath my feet. Our lady of the birth trauma, our lady of psychosis, I wanted to speak to them. Tell them I understood, but the words came out scrambled. So I knelt instead and prayed in the chapel of motherhood. Prayed for that whole wild fucking queendom. Its sorrow, its unbearable skinless beauty and all the souls that were in it. I prayed and prayed until my voice was a night cry and sunlight pixelated my face like a kaleidoscope. <laughs> this second poem's called Homing. Um, as we spoke about before, the, the black country is an area with a much maligned accent. Um, and I suppose I wanted to write a poem that was a poem full of longing and love for it and for those people I love who'd spoken in that voice. Homing. For years, you kept your accent in a box beneath the bed. 
The lock was stitched shut by hours of elocution. How now, brown cow? The teacher's ruler across your legs. We heard it escape sometimes. A guttural oh on the phone to your sister. Saft or blot to a taxi driver unpacking your bags from his boots. I loved its thick drawl. Jeez, that rang. Clearing your house. The only thing I wanted was that box. Jemmy Dalpen to let years of lost words spill out. Bibble. Fiddle. Tay. Wum. Veils ferrous as nails. Consonants you could lick the coal from. I wanted to swallow them all. The pits. Railways. Factories thunking and clanging the night shift. The red brick back to back you were born in. I wanted to forge your voice in my mouth. A blacksmith's furnace. Shout it from the roofs. Send your words like pigeons fluttering for home. have time for some questions or we could just have some more poems questions or poems, poems. deal <laughs> so we have another five minutes and I think oh we just you know we could take the whole weekend in fact um, I just wondered if we could have one more poem each yeah, sure um, I'm going to read my daughters the daughters sorry my daughters are here um, you know what, for a long time, my daughters, when they were younger, wanted to be my muses. And now they've turned 13, and uh, they really don't want to be my muses. <laughs> and I, and they're really, I really want to write about them now. Um, so this is written when they were younger, and actually, um, they're twins, and they started losing their teeth at the same time, it, which is extraordinarily difficult, because uh, we had a week when we, I think they together lost like five teeth. It was disgusting. So <laughs> um, they just used to come and bring their... And so that's the kind of jumping-off point for the poem. Um, and, yeah, apart from that, it's got nothing to do with my daughters. It's called The Daughters. My daughters have lost 236 teeth and counting. They possess so many skills. They can craft sophisticated weaponry, such as blowpipes, lances, and slings and know what the sharp end of a peacock's feather is for. Last month, they constructed a canoe and saved the Purdue Mephistopheles from extinction. They may not know that a bird in the hand is worth noting, but have learnt never to bleed on any of the auspicious days and are aware that pleasure is a point on a continuum. I fear they will never make good brides. They are too fond of elliptical constructions and are prone to lying in the dirt reading paragraphs in the clouds. Their shadows are long. They know many things, my girls. When they are older, I will teach them that abundance and vulcanization are bad words. When they sleep, they sleep heavy. I go into their rooms and check their teeth. <laughs> Thank you.
finish with a little short poem. Um, it's the last poem in the book, and it's called The Night You Were Born. When I was expecting my eldest son, I spent a lot of time imagining, like lots of first-time parents, what that experience of birth was going to be like. Um, when you hear this poem, you'll see how terribly ill-prepared I was. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, in, in my romantic dreaming, I found myself returning to the idea of my own partner being born and how that moment of somebody coming into the world will go on to change our story forever, even though we might not know it for years, decades, until they enter our lives. It just seems so beautiful to me. The night you were born. It was a month before May. All the lights in the black country out for the evening. Wren's nest tucked under a blanket of darkness. Mithered only by the fog beams of your dad's van as it sped to the hospital. In the back, the dog. Snuffling in a bed of tools and wood shavings. In the front, your mom. Panting on the turns. A frightened moon face whining at the window. I think about that night when I dozed heavy with our sun in the snow soft hours. What it would have been to have seen you pushed, howling from that red tent of legs. The first word on the page of our story. I press myself against you in the darkness. Listen for your murmur as he moves inside me. Oh, love. I can almost hear it now. That first cry. A raw thread of sound spooling through winter to stitch our lives together. We have to end there, I'm afraid. Um, huge thanks, Thank wonder, admiration, appreciation. Mona Arshi and Liz Berry. <laughs> <laughs>